perhaps for you as it is for me, even in the short time that we've been together today, it's kind of humbling, isn't it, to see how the mind sometimes seems to have a mind of its own. And that no matter how sincere and wholehearted our efforts are, you know, it's like there, there it goes again, there she goes again, you know, back, forth, back, forth. And for me, and perhaps for you too, one of the ways that I have found really helpful in the hard times, you know, in the times when it feels really difficult, you know, just beginning again and again, starting all over again, trying again, I did it yesterday, it happened, the last hour, it happened the last minute, and here we go again, you know, is I go like to the ancestors, I go to the women and men who've gone before to draw inspiration, to draw comfort, because I find it helpful to remind myself that what was possible for them is possible for me. And if she did it, I can do it. It's my birthright as much as it was her or his birthright. And I find that very stirring. Like for example, if I'm having a day where the mind is really scattered and all over the place, can't focus, then I sometimes think of the life of Hafiz, the wonderful 14th century Sufi poet who lived in Shiraz in Iran. And when he was a young, young boy, adolescent, about 13, he fell head over heels in love with a young girl who would have nothing to do with him. She wouldn't even acknowledge his presence. And he was so bereft by the situation that he went off into the desert outside Shiraz. And I've been to Shiraz, it's very barren and dry there. And for 40 nights he went at sunset and he made a circle around himself. And until the moment the sun came up, he spent the whole night in prayer, praying to God, to Allah. Um, and the custom was that if one's prayers were sincere and wholehearted, then the Archangel Gabriel will come to you uh, at the end of 40, 40 nights. And so he did this, this young kid, for 40 days he prayed all through the nights and then he would get up as the sun rose and rush off to do his work. He was a, a delivery boy for his father's bakery. And on the 40th night or dawn, as just before the sun came up, the Archangel Gabriel appeared outside his circle. And the Archangel Gabriel said, you know, I see your efforts are sincere and I will grant you a wish. And you know, for 40 nights he'd resolved, he was going to ask that the Archangel Gabriel melt the heart of this, of this young girl. And he was so shaken by this vision of loveliness, by this light of heaven, of God, this messenger of the divine, that he just forgot all about the young girl and he said, I want to know God, you know. And that was the beginning of his journey and here we are a thousand years later still so touched by the reverberations of his love and his search which was a dogged search. It was only after another 40 years that he really f fully awakened. Uh, so his was, his was a long journey. And so I often think of Hafiz when, you know, it's hard. And then, you know, I think of the Buddha. You, you know, he, um, 
you know, I think of, 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 of his life. You know, they're the stirring accounts of his awakening when he sat down under this tree and he said, come hell or high water. He said, I will not get up. My bones can turn to dust. I can disappear, but I will not get up unless uh, I'm enlightened. I've had enough. I want to, I want to know what it means to live a life uh, beyond suffering. And uh, there are all these stirring accounts of how the forces of his mind mythologized into the stories of the daughters of Mara came to tempt him with greed, hatred, and delusion, and desire, and temptation. And he was able to just sit there sort of unwaveringly. And at some point, this long night, he also had a long night, he touched the ground. And he said, let the earth bear witness to my right to be free. It's my birthright, as it is the birthright of all of us. And when it really feels hard and unattainable, and we're getting nowhere, I like to remind myself, I sometimes even touch the ground, that it is the birthright of all of us to be free from suffering. And as the story goes, he was assaulted with molten lava and spears and daggers, and they all turned to flowers around him because they couldn't touch him. And then fortunately, in the morning, as the sun came up again, he had his awakening experience. And, and, and so thinking of the Buddha uh, you know, as just a, a stirring reminder of what ultimately is possible for all of us. And for me, when I'm feeling a little closed-hearted or I'm feeling perhaps unforgiving of somebody, sort of holding them out of my heart. I think of Nelson Mandela, you know, this beloved man who, like me, was from South Africa, and who after 27 years in prison, when somebody asked him, how can you now sit down and negotiate your freedom with those who imprisoned you? And he said, ultimately, he said, we Africans are a forgiving people. Ultimately, we Africans are a forgiving people. And when I look around the world at all the intractable problems that there appear to be, the areas of conflict, division, and separation, I think of Nelson Mandela, and I think of what's happened in South Africa, and that every situation on our planet, how impossible it might seem in this moment, there is hope, there is a possibility, there is another way, and it can happen. And then at this Easter time, you know, this time of the passion of Christ and particularly the last week of his life when he was betrayed and denied and violated and assaulted in extreme ways irrespective of what Mel Gibson's movie may or may not have said that um, ultimately the triumph in, in, in that life for me was the moment on the cross where after all of this he was able to say Father forgive them for they know not what they do. That ultimately, unconsciousness is forgivable. That we cannot ultimately be responsible for our actions if we unconscious. And so he reminds me that this journey of forgiveness has so many different layers. It is so beautiful and there's so much potential. And this question, this issue of separation, whether it's separation from ourselves, separation from one another, apartheid as they called it in South Africa, the 
a system of separation. The common concern, if we look over the landscape of all the beautiful spiritual traditions of the years, the common concern is the, the concern, the issue of separation. If we go beyond all the apparent differences between all the religious, spiritual faiths, there is this very common and agonizing denominator of separation. And this is what ultimately all the traditions are concerned with. For the Sufis, it's framed as separation from the beloved. And the whole way, the whole path of the Sufis is, is a way of living this homesickness of the heart, this homesickness for God, the beloved, yearning, yearning to be home, to be home. If we look at the issue of, of separation from a biblical perspective, the biblical mythology of separation, of course, began in the Garden of Eden when that apple was taken and eaten and Apple and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden which was banished from the experience of God they began the whole biblical drama through the Old Testament and the New Testament of man's yearning men and women over the years yearning for the experience of the Kingdom of God for the experience of coming home to, to, to Eden the experience that was um, uh, set in motion by the mythological events in the Garden of Eden. And from the Buddhist perspective, and each of these traditions looks at this question of separation in a different way, from the Buddhist perspective, he looked at what is it that, that separates us. And all of the beautiful practices and meditations that he gifted the world with all addressed what he called the obscurations. All this obscures the deepest sense of ourselves. And so by addressing what obscures us from the deepest experience of ourselves, we come home. And so that's the way of the Buddha, all from different perspectives, looking at the same problem, the same dilemma the question of separation. And ultimately, the deepest and most pervasive and perhaps most important separation is the separation that exists within all of us. And uh, the Buddha would say it's separation from what he called our Buddha nature or uh, the Christian mystic would say it's a separation from our Christ nature. Uh, uh, the Sufi would say it's separation from the beloved. Some might say it's a separation from, from wholeness, from God, from, from our perfect essence. The Course in Miracles says so beautifully that we are all holy and perfect children of God. And the whole problem is that we've just forgotten and from this perspective, this mystical perspective, we can never be sinners. There's no such thing as sin. If sin is anything, it's our forgetfulness. It's forgetting who we truly are. And the whole journey, the whole path is about a journey of remembering what was already there. It's a paradox. It's almost like there's nowhere to go. It's just a question of remembering in this moment, 
what is already there. And that's why in the meditation instructions that I've offered today and some of you have heard before, it's just this injunction to be present, just again and again. Because it is an absolute possibility in every moment of this precious human life to experience the deepest essence of who we are. And in that experience of ourselves, the forgetfulness is gone forever because the delusion and the clouds cannot be there with the deepest experience of who we are. And so that in essence, perhaps whether we know it or not, whether I know it or not, is why we come together, that we remind one another in our gathering that we're not alone, that we have a shared birthright to be free from suffering, and we have a shared birthright to flower into our greatest loveliness and experience what is essential and common to all of us. In the Gnostic Gospels of Christ, there's this beautiful line where he says, he says, if you think the kingdom of God is in heaven, he said, the birds are going to get there before you. He said, if you think the kingdom of God is at the bottom of the ocean, which they did at that time, he said, the fish are going to get there before you. He said, the kingdom of God is within you right here right now. He said, cleave a piece of wood, and he said, I'm there. He said, lift a rock, and I'm there. Just such a powerful injunction to present-mindedness. And so this issue of separation from the deepest parts of ourselves is an agony that, to some degree, all human beings share. Certainly, if we look out at the world, at this beloved planet with all its evidence of agonizing division, whether it's the separation of, of nations from one another, or all the ways in which the human collective divides. It divides in religious traditions. We've got Muslims and Christians. We've got within each of the traditions, we have the Sunni Muslims and the, the Shiite Muslims. We have the Roman Catholics and we have the Protestants. This impulse to divide runs so deep. We have the division between nations and all the wars. It seems like there always has been consistently a war over history at some point in the planet. It's just that the players change, but the wars continue. And then there's the separation between those who have and those who have not. That we live in a world where there is both immense wealth and in a world where children are born into circumstances of abject poverty and die before their first month is over. There's no food. And the divisions between genders, men and women, the divisions between people of different ethnicities and colors, the divisions between people of different sexual preferences, it seems like the impulse of the mind to divide runs so deep and it's manifest so clearly in the world in which we love. And then of course this separation manifests as war and as poverty or suspicion, fear, arrogance and intolerance. But the other side of the coin is the division within ourselves. The division within ourselves which is really far more insidious and so defines the world in which we live. 
if we look within ourselves and the path of meditation, insight meditation, uh, which is the meditation in my experience, if the, the path of bringing ourselves to our experiences, we've already done a little today, with candor, with frankness, with self-acknowledgement, we begin to see how divided we are, how split we can be, how certain parts of ourselves are acceptable and certain parts of us are not acceptable. There's this fragmentation and division and most often it manifests as voices within us that can be so unforgiving. Voices of harshness, voices of criticism. We can crucify ourselves as a species very effectively moment to moment to moment. And some of us, and certainly in my experience up to a point it was very true, we often treat ourselves in ways that we would never ever treat another person. And this is a terrible world. It's a terrible inner world. And if we're willing to bring ourselves to that world naked, with open eyes, we find the exact same landscapes within us. The landscapes of war and conflict, the landscapes of poverty, of feeling barren and dry, within ourselves. There are places of intolerance and arrogance and suspicion. And so what is abroad in our world we find within us. And from the mystical perspective, from the perspective of meditation, really until there is a homecoming, a ceasefire within ourselves, the outer division and the outer fragmentation of our planet that tears our, our hearts apart really cannot come to a conclusion for who we are inwardly, our experience of ourselves absolutely informs the collective. And ultimately our endeavors are futile and doomed to save and heal this planet to the degree that the war continues within each of us. And so important is it that women and men like us come together, are willing to be inward, to look with candor and with frankness within ourselves, and be willing to grapple with whatever it is that separates, divides, and fragments us. And certainly in my experience and in the experience of many, the self-blessing of forgiveness explored and lived in one's life is one of the most effective ways of bringing this fragmentation and this division to a conclusion once and for all. Once and for all. And what is particularly sad, I feel is that within the agony and confusion of these landscapes of disarray and of separation within us, it's our tendency to blame, to scapegoat, to demonize, and to vilify. To have somebody, something that we can point a finger, a finger to. In a desperate endeavor to give reason, meaning, justification, a framework, perhaps for what is going on, rather than know, feel, grapple, 
and take responsibility for these places within ourselves that are divided. And so it is in this landscape of retribution and finger pointing that we create enemies, we create adversaries, we, we create a sense of the other, a sense of good and bad, and in all this finger pointing and the thirst for enemies, we just keep this cycle of division turning, turning, turning. And so today what I'd like to do together, I'm so grateful for this opportunity, is to just look deeply at this question of forgiveness, what it means and what it doesn't mean. To explore the possibilities of how it can be lived as a practice, as a, as a touchstone in our life as what for me I feel is perhaps the most radical intervention in our suffering world. The greatest piecework that we can do is to bring to a conclusion the landscapes of separation within ourselves. I think as we heal ourselves, we heal the world. And I, I believe in the deepest part of me that our coming together and our willingness to do this is at the self-same time healing our beloved planet. So I'd like to just speak a little about the way of meditation and I'm referring to the meditation that we've done a little bit of already today. In a way it's really radical. It's, you know, in a world that thrives on denial and avoidance of, of circumscribing oneself so that life is comfortable, of pushing away the unpleasant, pulling and grabbing and clutching and clinging to what is pleasant. It's pretty radical to entertain the possibility of bringing ourselves to an experience of life where we're just willing to be with things exactly as they are that we feel within ourselves our impulsive knee-jerk reaction to push away and deflect and to get rid of what it is that we don't like. And in this candor and in this self-acknowledgement, which I think is perhaps the most courageous uh, of landscapes upon which to inwardly position ourselves, we come face to face with ourselves. We stand naked before those patterns within us that tear our hearts apart. And we don't move. We just are willing to be there. We, there's so many accounts in all the great spiritual traditions of women and men who have made this journey. We think of, of St. John of the Cross in his dark night of the soul, really grappling with the forces of division, separation within us. St. Teresa of Avila, beautiful, stirring writing. She was a great writer of her experience of acknowledge. And Hildegard of Bingham and Julian of Norwich, Rabia, the great Sufi mystic woman. And all the spiritual traditions have this, the same journey, it must be so. We must come face to face with ourselves. There's no way to circumvent, to kind of bypass those things that separate us from God, if you will. And I feel that it is great self-blessing, as contrary and contradictory as it may feel in any human life, when that woman or that man disdains the more superficial currents of life, and is willing to plunge into the deeper water of what it means to be born human. 
And in this plunging and in this, you know, Orpheus called it the underworld, in our willingness to, to be in the underworld, we come, of course, face to face with the most difficult aspects of ourselves. And the ripening of a capacity to trust in the difficult, I think, is one of the true flowerings of the human spirit. Rocky, the great German writer and poet, put it this way. He said, it is true that these mysteries of life are dreadful and people have always drawn away from them. But where can we find anything sweet and glorious that would never wear this mask of the dreadful? Whoever does not sometime or another give his or her full and joyous consent to the dreadfulness of life can never take possession of the unutterable abundance and power of our existence. He or she can only walk on the edge of life and one day when judgment is given will have been neither alive nor dead. And so the vision in this coming face to face with ourselves is that life is no longer lived in a panic-stricken endeavor to get rid of what we don't like and to cultivate what we do like. And we find within ourselves a capacity just to be with things exactly the way they are. Feels like the, you know, the in so many traditions they talk about laying down the burden and for me the laying down of the burden must have something to do with just laying down that eternal impulse to want to hold on to the pleasant and push away the unpleasant and choreograph our lives in a way that deep down we know is impossible. And so this is the way essentially of forgiveness. It's really uh, a radical uh, imperative to just accept things exactly as they are. And it feels just if for a moment we can just have a sense of our planet, it just feels more critical than ever, increasing moment to moment that each of us, every man and every woman who has been blessed with an impulse to flower and to know themselves, that we explore the capacity to heal once and for all the divisions within us with forgiveness, with love, with kindness, and with frankness, because I think our planet depends on it, and the welfare of our children depend on our willingness to go in. I sometimes think, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about it, but you know, just looking at the different traditions, like what has been, you know, a primary gift to the world of the different traditions. And I always think of, you know, in, in Islam, you know, the injunction to praise God, to praise Allah, you know, I don't know if any of you have been to a mosque, you know, when, you know, one of the five times a day when when the Muslims go to a mosque and pray to Allah. It's an incredible thing. There's just this incredible bowing to Allah. 
yeah, there is no God but God, you know, again and again and again, five times a day, so that it's kind of instilling and reinforcing a sense that really the primary responsibility, our responsibility as human beings from uh, a Muslim perspective is to be with God in the world. And that's so beautiful, such a real injunction to a life of quality. And I think, you know, Christianity, it seems like the life of Christ was such a, uh, an example of unconditional and relentless love through the most difficult of circumstances. It was, I don't know if anybody, did anybody see the passion of Christ? You know, one of the things that I thought was creditable, or the thing I thought was creditable, was the presence of Satan. It was just this almost like in a three-dimensional movie, there was this almost like two-dimensional specter of Satan, who was this sort of androgynous presence, always there as Christ was going up to Calvary, dragging this cross and being beaten and whipped and whatever. And there was just this presence of Satan watching for a moment, for a chink, when he could get in, when there was a wavering of, of the love. And it never happened. And right up to the end there was the temptation there and the presence of Satan was there always and of course it never happened and I think that Christ's relentless generosity of heart for me is just such a stirring blessing of that life and for the Buddha he, he was a real, you know, he, he was considered a physician. In fact, he referred to himself as a physician of the mind. He said, you know, believe nothing that I tell you. Don't believe what your teacher tells you out of respect for your teacher. Don't believe what your parents teach you. Don't believe anything that's traditional or anything that you imagine. But he said, but by whatever way you find leads to good and happiness for all creatures, that way follow like the moon follows the path of the stars. So he was saying, don't believe anything, but I'll give you tools for understanding your mind. I'll give you tools for cultivating love. And then you do the work. You take the responsibility. I will support you in, 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 in essence. And so he, he gave just all these beautiful practices, one of which we've done today, which is sort of like a fundamental practice in Buddhism. He also taught beautiful practices called the divine abodes, where there is a cultivation of love and kindness. And in these practices, we cultivate compassion and what's called sympathetic joy, which is joy in the happiness of others. And another one is the cultivation of equanimity. And so in these practices, they almost support the remembering of the heart, the ripening of the heart. And so, in, after the, uh, the talk's over, we'll do another walking period and then we'll come together for meditation. And this meditation essentially is out of this practice of the, of the divine abodes. And always in these practices, he begins, he suggests that we begin with ourselves. And it's often misunderstood. And people think, oh, you know, meditation is such a myopic sort of self-involvement, that it's really selfish and, and uh, you know, we should you know, be more expansive. And the Buddha felt that until these qualities of the heart are lived and cultivated within us, he felt that the extension of them to others was really to some extent circumscribed. 
in some ways even a contrivance. And so I really felt it was important that we cultivate these qualities within us and then it's almost like they in and of themselves will overflow uh, to others. And so in the meditation that we'll do this morning, we begin with ourselves and then uh, we, we move to the forgiveness of others. And I feel that a practice, a meditation practice that is inclusive of everything. You know, we've already, in the meditation that we've done today, we've worked with sensations in the body. Is it hot in here? How are people doing? A little bit hot? Do you think I have just a window crack a little? <laughs> I tend to steam up a bit, so I'm just checking. Thank you. Thank you, Flora. Thanks, Lorraine. And so in the meditation, in this willingness to be fully inclusive of everything, like 24-7, 360 degrees, that there's nothing that falls outside of the vision of meditation practice, we of course come to places that are very difficult within ourselves we see that we have thoughts and there are actions that we've done or are doing or there are words that we've spoken that have originated out of feelings of vindictiveness perhaps of anger, of selfishness, of greed and it's not that we're bad people because we're not bad people it's just that we're human people and it requires a willingness to acknowledge these forces at work within ourselves in order for them to be healed. In the same Gnostic Gospels of Christ, is everybody familiar with the Gnostic Gospels? Anybody not? The Gnostic Gospels were uh, teachings of Christ, uh, the Gospel of Thomas uh, was found in Egypt in 1945 and they were completely untouched, uncensored, unmediated by, by all the different edicts and uh, conferences that, that in effect re-scripted the Bible that we read. These were the words of Christ documented and preserved and found in 1945. So they really are significant in that respect. So those are the words I said earlier about the Kingdom of God. And he also said in the Gnostic Gospels, he said, what we bring forth from within us will save us. And what we don't bring forth from within us will destroy us. And the process of meditation of any spiritual practice I feel must bring forth from within us that which is creating suffering for acknowledgement and perhaps for forgiveness and for love. And so we find places of intolerance and cruelty within ourselves. We perhaps feel the agony of how it is to live a human life that is significantly mediated by the expectations of others. 
We feel the agony of the outlandish expectation that many of us have of ourselves. It's almost as though we have internalized the expectations of others. It's almost like at any moment we might say, who am I going to be in this moment? The one my mother wants me to be? The one my father expects me to be? The one my teachers say I could be? The one my spiritual teacher says I should be? You know, And it's almost like we lose ourselves in all these different persona. Did anybody see that movie, Mona Lisa Smile? I learned so much in that movie and essentially it was about a you know, woman in the 50s at Wesley College in Massachusetts and how they were cookie-cuttered into playing these devastating roles, you know, smiling faces with the Hoovers, you know, you know, <laughs> what I want for Christmas is a Hoover, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, and how by and large everybody subscribed to this, you know. The women were taught to swim with beautiful smiles on their faces, you know because their husbands would not want to see them not smiling. And so, you know, are we living a life that is authentic and true? Or are we living a life dictated by society, by the forces around us that would have us dovetail with the prevailing expectations of the world? It's almost like we have all these persona that we put on. And for some people, they've lost all sense of who they really are. Life is lived so much in this role-playing. And in this endeavor to live a life of role-playing, then almost an experience of litigation goes on within us. It's like we judge this, we judge that, we're not good, and so forth. At a gathering with the Dalai Lama that I was at a number of years ago, he first heard about the problem of self-hatred in the West and a number of teachers were meeting with him and said to him, you know, it's just so pervasive, this self-hatred. And he was shocked and he was amazed and he didn't understand it. He was absolutely incredulous. He said, you know, is this some kind of nervous disorder? You know, the people are so judging of themselves. And then later he said to us, as teachers of meditation in the West, he said, our primary responsibility is to do whatever we can to serve the healing of the forces of self-crucifixion that define the lives of women and men almost everywhere. He said, it's the primary obstacle impediment to awakening. Nasar Gadatta Maharaj, I don't know if anybody knows him, he's a wonderful Hindu teacher. I read these words at a time when I just was really weather-beaten by just seeing all the ways in which I was hurting myself. He says, all you need is already inside of you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and with love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is but a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond.
and so fortified by what we see and what we grapple with and what we feel. And of course in this process the heart breaks and the heart breaks again as we see ways that we have hurt and crucified ourselves far more successfully than anybody else could ever have done. And in our willingness to just be grounded on those landscapes and grapple and allow the heart to feel what it needs to feel. There is a kind of fortification that comes. We are schooled by the self-acknowledgement. And we can go out in the world where we're not so much seeing people so much as the other anymore, but we can see ourselves in other in, in others. And it's almost like if someone comes to us and they're angry and vindictive, we can say, oh my God, I've been there. I'm capable of that. This is awful. This person must be suffering so much. And it's not that we figure this out in the mind. It's the response of a, of, of, of a heart that is broken and broken and broken again. And we cannot banish them from our heart any longer because we know from our experience how agonizing and how difficult it is to behave in that way. And there's just a feeling of such gratitude that perhaps to not such a great degree are we held captive by these forces that are tearing the heart apart from the person who's standing in front of us. And the thirst for enemies must die away until eventually, hopefully, there's an experience of our heart that includes all human beings. And the impulse to point, to blame, and the thirst for enemies is just no longer a viable possibility. It just doesn't happen. I remember a couple of days before 9-11, I was sent a beautiful book called Prayers to God, poems by Tagore, the great Indian uh, teacher, philanthropist, artist, musician. And there was this one poem that really touched me. And then a couple of days later, 9-11 happened. A couple of days later, we had a retreat in Wood Valley. and. Uh, this is what he says. He says, and this was during the First World War, and he was looking out at the battlefields of the First World War. He got a Nobel Prize in 1913. He said, all the black evils in the world have overflowed their banks. Yet, oarsmen, take your place with the blessing of sorrow in your souls. Whom do you blame? brothers and sisters, bow your heads down. The sin has been yours and ours, the heat growing in the heart of God for ages. The cowardice of the weak, the arrogance of the strong, the greed of fat prosperity, the rancor of the wronged, pride of race and insult to men has now burst God's peace and raging into storm. And so as we consider the viability of the possibility for forgiveness, I'd like to, in the last section of this talk, just offer some reflections and some thoughts and certainly some lessons I've learned along the way. And the first and I think primary understanding about forgiveness is what it is and what it isn't. Forgiveness is never about condoning something 
that should never ever have happened. How could we say yes to the abuse of children, to the, the starvation of our planet, to the violation of the environment, or to the waging of war? It's never about condoning something that is altogether inappropriate and a violation of the web of human connectedness. But the practice of forgiveness is about bringing ourselves to what is happening and finding ultimately being willing to find within ourselves a capacity for saying yes. And the yes is not a yes of condoning. It's a yes that says we as a species have gotten to this place where children are abused, where planes can be commandeered and flown into buildings. We can say yes to the fact that we live on a planet where children are born into circumstances of poverty that will kill them. It's yes to the fact that we live at a time where there are administrations and people in power that are woefully destroying the environment that blesses us with life. And it's just being willing. The condoning is in no way saying yes. It's a, con it's a willingness to say yes to the fact that this is now what is happening. And in that willingness to say yes, we rest and we listen and we wait for the response to come. We don't knee-jerk and immediately try to get rid of it and blame and create energy uh, enemies. At that same gathering, which happened on the day that Timothy McVeigh was executed for his involvement in the Oklahoma bombing, the Dalai Lama was asked about his point of view about the execution of McVeigh. And he said that we, as a species, must learn to forgive. But he said, we must also never forget. And he said, what that means is that probably in the case of McVeigh, he should be circumscribed so that he's not abroad in the community, hurting other people, hurting himself. So it's not that, you know, the practice is not about having a lobotomy or developing a sort of idiot compassion. It's about ultimately forgiving because he's a part of ourselves, he's part of the same web of life that we share, and perhaps the appropriate response is that he be contained. Hopefully even rehabilitated so he can make some contribution. But that to execute and you know, get rid of and clear him from, from, from human life is not going to eliminate the problem. Three quarters of an hour. We got about 15 minutes to go. How are we doing? There's no question, I mean, if we think of the great forgivers like Mandela, that the depth of our self-understanding and our impulse to, to forgive blesses us with a lived experience of forgiveness that touches and examples everyone of what is possible. 
So not only is it a personal treasure, but in living the forgiveness, I feel it opens up a possibility for others to kind of sense and feel and entertain within their own lives the possibility of forgiveness. And then I certainly have learned that the process of forgiveness is that exactly that, it's a process. I remember on an early retreat, I was doing a lot of forgiveness practice towards my parents and I was so angry with them. I was so pissed off with them. And I was just raging and furious and it went on for weeks and weeks and it was wearing and it was terrible. And I was saying, you know, I'm willing to forgive you, I'm willing to forgive you at times. And when I did the meditation, because I do later, it was like, you know, you know, throwing dust against a brick wall. And then one day it was like, whew, the heart opened and there was this huge, beautiful, succulent experience of forgiveness. Oh, it was so beautiful. It was so different from all this raging, hot anger and stuff. And I thought, great, now I've like aced forgiveness and I can get back to the breath, you know. And then it was like, the next day it was like, whoa, we were back again, even stronger than before. And so it's, it's a process, it's like an onion. It's almost like one level healed and forgiven kind of invites the next layer to come forward for the, for the blessing of forgiveness. And then of course there's patience. You know, sometimes I think that the forgiving life is the whole life. You know, w once we start it's kind of endless and requires, you know, such a capacity for patience, such a willingness just to begin again and again, to just trust and have a faith in the deepest part of ourselves that what I'm doing is enough and what will ripen will ripen in its own way. Rumi, another of the Sufis, he was in the 13th century, he had this beautiful poem which I discovered yesterday, which I love. He says, a new moon teaches gradualness and deliberation and how one gives birth to oneself slowly. Patience with small details makes perfect a large work like the universe. What nine months of attention does for an embryo, 40 early mornings will do for your gradually growing wholeness. Is that 40 again. 40 early mornings will do for your gradually growing wholeness. You know, in Buddhism there's this wonderful tradition, uh, particularly in the Tibetan tradition of bodhisattva vows, where you take bodhisattva vows, which is a vow to save all sentient beings from suffering. And when I first heard that I thought, oh my God, you know, that is a tall order and this is going to keep me busy, you know. But my, my sense these days is that it's really different, that, that the forgiving heart that we cultivate, the loving heart, the compassionate heart, informs the collective of which we all are part and in that respect we are saving and serving all sentient beings. So I like to think that our gathering here is actually informing everybody, whether we believe it, sense it or not. I feel that what we're doing here is making a difference. We are essentially bodhisattvas committing our lives 
to to serving and helping all sentient beings. And I know there are friends here who do the Bodhisattva vows every day as part of uh, their practice. And then another lesson that is critical in this way of forgiveness is the importance of the willingness to feel the emotions. You know, some of these emotions are horrible. You know, I mean, it's awful to sit and to feel what envy feels like, you know. You know, you love someone and you're envious of them and you covetousness, you know, and you, you know, and it's like you resent them and you love them, you know, it's like the mind is shameless, you know. And yet if we try to circumvent these feelings, the forgiveness is a contrivance. And so in whatever way is necessary, it's really important to feel the emotions which I think probably singularly is the most important service. It's the organics for the ripening of forgiveness. Just being willing to feel, to trust the difficult, as Rookie said. And just being willing to get messy, you know? Emotions are messy. You know, sometimes when we offer these meditation instructions, they seem so pure, you know. A breath comes, a breath goes, you know, a sound arrives, passes away, you know. And then we, 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 we won't have time, but, you know, if we did, it would be, you know, and emotions appear and disappear, you know, anger comes, goes, you know. Guilt arrives, passes on, you know. It all sounds so nice and clinical. It's messy, you know. You know, this is just like a, you know, a framework and we all grapple in our own way. And we have to be willing, I think, to be messy and to not try and push the river, you know. I mean, for example, there are seasons of sadness, you know. There are seasons of, grie of grieving. You know, this human life, there's so much suffering. And to not try and bring these cycles to a conclusion, but to find a capacity of heart to befriend them, to say yes, to know them. Like if fear comes up, is there a capacity to say, great, here you are, welcome, let's sit down, have tea together. Do your worst, you know, I'm here, you know. I'm willing to die of fear, you know. Here we go. We're on the merry-go-round. And then another beautiful thing about forgiveness is it's not that we should do it or that it must be there. All that's required is that there be a willingness to forgive. It's so beautiful with all these qualities of the heart, those divine abodes. It's not that, that we have to do them and if they're not there, it's wrong. All we have to do is to be willing to forgive. It's our intention to love, our intention to be compassionate. And then the forgiveness, the compassion, the love ripens in its own way, in its own time, in its own circumstance, in utterly and perfectly individual way. It's so beautiful. And some of the other lessons I've learned certainly is that the other person who uh, we want to forgive, and we'll do this in the, the meditation, want to forgive someone who's hurt us, they don't have to be present. They don't even have to know that we are, are, are forgiving them. They don't even have to be alive. That really, that uh, the, the forgiveness really happens independently of them. 
So often these circumstances requiring forgiveness involve revenge and retribution and there's this tit for tat escalating always and there's this cycle of unforgiving tension that arises and it's such a self-blessing just to remove ourselves from that cycle. And so we're just removing whether they know it or whether they don't. And if we're asking for forgiveness, which we'll do too in the meditation, it doesn't matter if they know that we're asking for forgiveness. It doesn't matter even if they agree or not. It's almost like by our humility, by our acknowledgement, by our apology, just the vibration of, of our acknowledgement and our willingness to say sorry, we, we are informing the energy around us. And that's all that's necessary just 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 to ask and in the meditation practice one of the junctures where where you know it's really easy to see how forgiving we are with ourselves is how we come back to the breath when the mind wanders you know do we come back with oh my god I failed again you know you're a miserable failure here we go you'll never get this Everybody else is doing it perfectly. I can't do this, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or do we say, oh, yeah, great, I'm back. Here we go again, you know. Just seeing the tone and how it changes over the years. You know, just how we begin again and again and again. Are we forgiving of this very human impulse to be distracted, to wonder? Or do we have a yardstick there too? Uh, um, an agenda for ourselves. And I found one of the other great blessings in the practice of forgiveness is having a deeper sense of what for me is the most important thing in my life. When there is this sense of what the priority is, where there's a clarity of intention of what it is that is most important, the imperative to forgive just seems so much greater. It seems like to not forgive is interfering with what is most important and it becomes a no-brainer to keep somebody out of the heart. And so I found it particularly helpful to consolidate the energy around what it is that is most important. You may just want to reflect over this day, maybe during the lunch break, why are we here? What brings you here? What is it that stirs you to do this sometimes difficult thing of looking at ourselves? Really, really important. And for me, this, this sense of priority has to do actually with the symbol of the cross. Originally I thought it was to love, and it is to love, but I've come to realize that when living a sense of priority, I think one has to be real careful about how one frames it, because all our thoughts of the love that we're capable of, all our notions and ideas of what compassion means, are immediately circumscribed, because words cannot hold and contain the vastness of the possibility of the human hearts. I mean, we're on this journey, we like flower buds opening into our greatest loveliness. And what that loveliness is, we have no idea. I mean, when we populate the reservoirs of kindness and tenderness within us, it's going to knock our socks off. 
because it's going to be so much faster than we ever could have imagined. And so for me, the living of the cross, the living of the, the symbol of the intersection of the divine and the human, of the absolute and the relative, as Christ said, so above, so below, you know, just living the qualities of heaven on earth, you know, just as that becomes just a deeper resolve, it's almost like keeping my eye on that prize, the imperative to forgive just becomes so much stronger. You know, in the earlier part of my life, um, up until the first years of practicing, I had this tendency inside of myself, I'm sure that none of you have got it, but it's like if somebody else didn't measure up to my standards, they were like on my shit list, you know? It was like if they didn't measure up, it was like I wanted nothing to do with them. And if there were parts of myself that I didn't like, I banished them, I avoided them, I would put myself into a sort of a solitary confinement of shame and guilt when I saw these, these places. And I had these series of dreams at the time where there was this Nazi, you know, in my dreams. And this Nazi was this incredibly unforgiving voice. It was like I could not allow people to be the way they were. They needed to dovetail with my expectations of them. And I couldn't allow myself to be as I am. I needed to dovetail with the expectations I had of myself. And so I think that in this birthing of forgiveness, I think there's a very real possibility of living without enemies whatsoever. And for me that's one of the, the most stirring thoughts of living a life completely without enemies, where there's no sense of the other. There's just sense of, of a shared life that we both are living. Rabia was this wonderful Sufi woman who lived in the 15th century and there's this line in the Quran that says hate the devil and she crossed out that line in the Quran and somebody said to her you can't do that that's like sacrilege you know you can't cross out anything you know that Muhammad you know received from the Archangel Gabriel and she, she said to this man she said this is my Quran and she said, my love of God makes it impossible for me to hate anybody, including the devil. And Walt Whitman has this beautiful line where he says, if we can look into the secret hearts of our enemies, we would find sorrow and sadness enough to disarm all hostility, living without enemies. And at the last retreat, actually, I read this, but I'd like to read it again. It's so beautiful. A couple of months ago, when the synagogue was bombed in Istanbul, this amazing gathering happened. It was on November 15th. And when it was reopened, this synagogue, after it had been bombed, first the chief rabbi of Turkey appeared at the ceremony hand-in-hand hand with the top Muslim cleric of Istanbul and the local mayor while crowds in the street threw red carnations on them. And then the Turkish leader who comes from an Islamist party paid a visit to the chief rabbi. And the third and most revealing thing about this situation 
was a statement made by the father of one of the Turkish suicide bombers who hit the synagogues. And he said, we are a respectful family who love our nation, our flag, and the Quran. But we cannot understand why this, my child, has done the thing that he has done. First, let us meet with the chief rabbi of our Jewish brothers. Let me hug him. Let me kiss his hands and his flowing robes. Let me apologize in the name of my son and offer my condolences for the deaths. We will be damned if we do not reconcile them. And then ultimately, in this flowering of forgiveness, we must move beyond, as Rumi says, all ideas of right doing and wrong doing. There's no longer this deep thirst within all of us to make things right and wrong and to interpret them, to create enemies, to create friends. He says, way beyond all ideas of right doing and wrong doing. There is a field and I will meet you there. And he says, when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other don't make any sense. May we sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.